0: The Natural Hat Trick, hosted by Luke Lipinski and Craig Morgan. Welcome into episode 270
1: of the Natural Hat Trick podcast, alongside Craig Morgan. Natty Eddie, I'm Luke Lipinski. Craig, how you doing today? Okay, hiding my bed head behind this uh, beautiful Wisconsin beanie. Don't tell Greg Powers. I'm gonna have to
0: tell Greg Powers. I'm sorry. Um... You'll be interested to know they are jackhammering in the street right out in front of my house for what yeah, I'm. You're sure. Sure. That's good. Okay, uh, well I can. I'm pretty sure it's for no reason at all. I think they just have extra jackhammers they want to play with on this fine Friday morning. They got a copy because... of our schedule. Yeah, <laughs> they they did start about 20 minutes before. Actually, it's not true. They originally started at five in the morning, which was cute, and then they stopped for a while and started. I think they were just waiting for us to record, and uh, and so if they make an appearance, uh, here we go.
1: Where do you draw would, the line, by the way, when when workers come to do something loud in the street or next door? Where do you draw? What's the time? Because we get we get landscapers who like wait for the first light of day and then decide it's OK to operate their, you know, gas powered tools in the park behind us. I would I say
0: sometime later than whenever these guys started. I'm a big fan of like leaf blower guy that doesn't really work for anybody that just stands outside your window and just like points the thing right at your window for an hour and a half. So you come out and wave to them. Um, I think it, it, isn't it? I think it has to be after six or seven.
1: Well, that's not happening around here sometimes when, you know, when it's summer and they, they're trying to get in while it's still cool. But uh, that's true. I, I kind of feel like seven o'clock should be the, maybe for landscapers, six o'clock because They've got a lot to do. They probably have other jobs, but man, like when I'm hearing something at five thirty in the morning, I have a problem with that. Well, it should be later on Sundays too, like on the weekends, but,
0: but I absolutely I'm on board with the, like, if you're a landscaper, you're going to be out in the heat all day. I totally get it. Like, and plus landscapers aren't usually that loud, but it's February and you're jackhammering a hole in the street that will probably prevent me from pulling out of my driveway anyway. And I'm not really sure what you're doing. You can wait till six. Yeah. Alright, let's, uh, let's get into some of the hockey we've got. Uh, the Coyotes are basically a third of the way through the season, just a little bit over that. Um, we'll get into a lot of listener questions too, but I want to start with the story you wrote on AZ Coyotes Insider. Uh, why don't you just tell us about how this came to be? Because I didn't know you were writing it, and then one day it just popped up in my feed, and I was like, well, haven't seen
1: this one written anywhere. No, uh, my ad representatives from Mitchell Miller reach out and ask if I'd be willing to interview him, and of course, there was a whole lot of trepidation there. Um, we all know the details of the case. Um, we know the, the state of (laughs) state of race relations in America and a lot of other issues in America, bullying in America. I, I had a lot of hesitancy when, when deciding whether I would write this story, but I did provide a lot of conditions under which the interview would even happen. I still didn't know if I would write a story. I think I, I outlined most of those in the story. Um, did want someone on the line coaching him. Um he had to answer all of my questions. Um I I wanted to reach out to the the victim's family as well, which I did. Um the mother gave me something short, but told me that Isaiah Meyer Cruthers is not doing interviews and she wanted to keep her comments brief as well. So I got in from her what I could in that story. But you know, I, I he agreed to all of those conditions and I conducted the interview, but even after that, Luke, look, there's I don't think I've really hidden my views on on politics and, and the situation in America on this podcast. I think most people know that I'm a liberal, and this was a tough story for me to even think about writing. Um, I counseled a lot of people. I counseled six people in total before writing it, three of whom have more than 100 years of journalism experience between them. Uh, everyone agreed that it was a legitimate news story if it was handled the right way, and, and several of these people even edited it for me to see the finished product. I also counseled my wife, who is my moral compass in life uh, and has a better moral compass than anyone I know. So I wrote the story um, and clearly uh, I knew ahead of time that there was going to be a wide range of opinions on this story. And, And that has been the case both in the comments section on the site and then, of course, on Twitter, which can be a brutal place. Yes. Twitter absolutely
0: can. Um, and I, I've read the story, you know, I, I think what, what stood out and I won't even get so much into the story. Like you said, most people know the backstory and, and I'm not sure how I feel about Mitchell Miller. I, I well, I am. And it's not, it's not, I don't, I don't, hold him in a very high opinion. Let's just put it that way. But um, I do think there is something to second chances. I'm not saying that he's at a place where he deserves it. I don't know him. I've never talked to him. I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and, and render judgment on on him or even the situation. I'll just say, I think sometimes we're too quick to say, no, you don't get a second chance to everything. Like there are different levels of stuff, but I would also say, and this is, I feel like gets lost a lot. Second chance doesn't mean you get to play in the NHL and make millions of dollars. There's, there's, you know, there's a difference between what this guy did was absolutely reprehensible to the point where we won't even discuss it on this show. But uh, and when he was 14, and if he takes the steps for years and years and years to try and get his life back on track, okay, I mean you shouldn't just be done at 14, I guess, depending what you did. And again, I don't, I still, I don't think I know all the details, but I don't think he ever needs to play in the NHL. That's, I mean, there's a ton of people out there who are good enough to play in the NHL who didn't get opportunities because their parents didn't have money, because they were hurt growing up, because they just didn't, you know, whatever. There's, there's a lot of people in the AHL that are are close to playing and don't get to play. So I think there's a difference in second chance between, okay, you know, you, your, your life shouldn't be over at 14, but you don't need to make millions of dollars playing hockey either. And I'm not, I'm not saying that he can never get to that point. Like I said, I'm just, I think that sometimes we don't draw that line. We're like, well, second chance means he gets to be playing in the all-star game next year.
1: Yeah. I I have a real problem with, you know, the the people in Mitchell Miller's camp who say that he's lost everything. He hasn't lost everything. He's lost hockey. That's it. There are plenty of options still open to Mitchell Miller. Playing in the NHL or really playing hockey, period, is a privilege. And that's how it should be viewed at this point. It should be viewed as, as that by just about anybody. It's not a right. So he hasn't lost everything. He has a lot of options. I also dismiss those who write this off as the act of a 14-year-old. Most 14-year-olds know not to do what he did. You know right yeah. from wrong when you're 14. It's not like you're six years old. This was, an inexcus- I would say most six-year-olds know not yeah. to do what he did, too. This was yeah. an inexcusable act, so let's not paint it as anything but that, okay? Let's start with those two points. At the same time, I really struggle with this idea that he doesn't deserve a voice. He doesn't deserve to speak anymore. I don't think this is the same thing. As a Tony D'Angelo, this is not an adult we're talking about, first of all. If if you have a, a history of behavior as an adult, uh, we, can, we can talk. I think that's in a different category, and we can talk about that. I would have a much greater problem with that. I still have enormous problems with what he did. But, again, I struggle with the idea that he doesn't deserve to talk about this. Yes, he does. Uh, the incident itself is above analysis, but, you know, And some, by the way, some have asked why I didn't ask about what happened in that incident. As a parent, I can tell you the answer. You don't ask your kids why they engaged in abhorrent behavior. That allows for the possibility that there was a reason for it. There's no good reason for what he did. It's about accountability from that point forward. And it's about teaching them why it was so wrong and how they can learn and grow from it. So as a kid, do we not give him a chance? I think this is a legitimate news story multiple people that I consulted with a lot of experience in this industry agreed with me. And as I said, edited it.
0: Yeah. And I think yeah, I can even probably draw distinctions there too. I'm not sure that I want to give him another chance, but I think from your perspective of writing the story, if you're a journalist and there's new news out there on an important subject, you know, I'm not going to say it's your responsibility to put it out there, but it it, it kind of is your job to put, I mean, that's what journalism is. So You know, I I think when you, when you allow somebody, and I'm sure I didn't read your comments. I'm sure you got some pushback on it. And, uh, and I understand that honestly. But, but I think when, when you're giving somebody like that a voice, it's not, it's not, okay, I'm giving this person a voice to, to help them look better. There were things in there he said where I'm like, man, you are still playing the victim. There were things in there he said that's like, okay, I haven't heard this. I didn't know he was doing this and this, but there are times like you just said where he was kind of like, and I've lost everything over this. Like you did this, man. I don't, I don't feel bad for you at all.
1: Yeah. And his mom made that point. You know, there are a lot of people saying, why are you ruining his life? Well, it was Mitchell who committed the act. He's the one who did this to Isaiah. So, yeah, accountability is important. And that was that was a big idea with the story. Okay, let's let him speak and let's let readers form their judgments. At the same time, there are a lot of snap judgments off this story and and the previous ones that have said he's not contrite. He's not doing enough. I I interviewed Mitchell Miller for 30 minutes. First of all, I'll tell you some details of the interview. This was not polished. He stammered. He was clearly emotional. There were points where he was embarrassed, but that doesn't say anything. After 30 minutes, I don't know if Mitchell Miller is contrite or not. Nobody does, but Mitchell Miller and maybe a few people close to him so all the uh, you know the internet people who are saying yeah he's not contrite enough I don't like what he's saying I don't think his words okay you can have that opinion but you don't know you absolutely do not know and stop pretending that you do none of us do but again I th- I thought it was worth hearing what he had to say putting it all out there and let people decide for themselves I set parameters for the art- for the article. And then again, just put it out there, let people hear what he has to say, and then decide. I do think this is a legitimate news story yeah, well, because he absolutely could
0: say stuff that makes himself look worse and yes. and you know and that was very much a possibility, and I think there are a couple parts in there where I don't want to say it makes him look worse because the original act is he's not going to be able to surpass that for just truly terribleness, but you know there were certain points in there, like I said, where he says stuff, and you're like, okay, this is still a i mean you can tell he's still a teenager. And you're like, OK, this guy's got more maturing to do than most people do at this age. But is he trying? If he's trying, then, you know, again, he should be able to mature. But that doesn't mean he gets to play in the NHL. But then there are other parts where it just it felt like he's still even if it's only 15, 20 percent where he still kind of feels like he's a
1: victim in this. It's, it's that's not it, man. You're 0 percent the victim. I get that, but that's also what made this interview more real to me. It wasn't polished where he was saying yeah. all the right things. He was still thinking of himself and what teenager doesn't think of themselves, to be honest. That's a big problem with teenage years. They're, they're self-indulgent. They're self-absorbed. Yeah. So it, it was a very real interview to me. Um, a couple of things before we move on. Um, uh, one of the things that has troubled me from the beginning, and, and I've mentioned this before on the podcast, I was reporting on this story when – Other outlets were also reporting on this story. I am an army of one versus multiple, though, so it was harder. When those reports came out, I I had heard some things, and I I continued to do some reporting. I'm not comfortable with the reporting to date on this story, Luke. I think there's a lot that has been missed, and I I think there – yeah, I I would just say I'll put it like that. I I think there is a lot that has been missed on this story. One of the things that came out in this story itself, I got a hold of the letter that he – wrote to uh, serve as an apology to Isaiah, there is a legal document, part of, part of public record that says he read it to Isaiah and it was also sent to the family. This letter was, and this whole process was witnessed by multiple school officials. And yet the mother is saying the letter was never read As a journalist, the only logical conclusion that you can reach there when you have multiple people from the district telling you that this did happen and it's part of a legal record. I have to question the mother's credibility on this. I have to as a journalist. I don't know if she's being truthful on this part of the story. Again, I got legal documents. And then with what he's done since, a lot of people say he hasn't done enough. Oh, he only did what the courts asked him to do in terms of uh, community service. Well, he did the 25 hours of community service. And if you look at what he did, it touched a lot of bases from working with disabled kids, working with minorities and and talking about anti-bullying in schools. The latter came after his community service had ended when he got to junior hockey, he was doing that uh, in Cedar Rapids. You can say, okay, well, he was doing that because the coach asked him to, okay, you, you know, was it, was it legitimate? Was it heartfelt? I don't know. Again, I don't know Mitchell Miller's heart, but, All kids need direction from adults on what to do. I mean, you can't just say, hey, go out there and talk about anti-bullying kid and and figure it out. No kid's going to be able to figure out. You have to give them structure. But the fact that he was doing these things both through the court mandates and then beyond that in the years afterward, at the very least, it put him in an environment where he could learn and grow from that. He was being exposed to ideas that he probably hadn't been exposed to before. And I have talked to people who really think they made an impact and not just coaches. It's not just coaches. It's people that are experts in the field that think it made an impact. Does that mean that he is contrite? Again, I do not know. I don't know Mitchell Miller's heart, but there's a lot more to this story that I think has not been reported. It's,
0: it is a mess. I, you know, I, I, you know it's i'm sure that was a difficult story to write i'm sure like you said you wrestled with even taking the call um it's a mess and and it's all of his doing so that's that's the thing where i'm just kind of like when when there's any sort of hint that it's like oh why am i still going through this you're going through this cuz you put everybody through it and right. and to and to me it's you know i there's not like a there's not a clean end to the story i mean maybe someday him and isaiah sit down 10, 15 years from now, I don't know. And Isaiah's like, all right, you know, I've, that, that to me is, is when he says he's kind of ready to move forward. You know, he's the only one that was truly affected by this. Like, I mean, his family too. So um, yes. yeah, I don't know. It's just so complicated and such a mess. And it goes so far past hockey. We really haven't even talked about hockey
1: yet. No. Yeah, ex- exactly. We, we know the state of race relations in America. We we've seen them exacerbated over the last four years. So it, it, it's such a hot button issue. Right. Um, but again, I, as you mentioned earlier, I, I, I just I wonder when are we even open to the idea of forgiveness for people? Uh, you see this all over the American penal system. As a culture, we don't seem interested in rehabilitation, only continuing punishment. Again, I don't know if Miller has reached the point where he even he even deserves that. And that's up for that's not up for me to decide. But I do find that aspect of our culture deeply troubling.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's a whole different conversation now in the in the age of social media where people and I'm not talking about this case. I'm just talking in general. There there is that like rush to judgment when you don't know all the facts. Yeah. But I I also I feel like even like five, six, seven, eight years ago, people weren't really held accountable when they did some terrible stuff. So in that respect, it's good. I just don't know how far it goes. You know what I mean? So we'll see.
1: Well, the the, and the the key point you made there is that uh, too many people form judgments without enough information. Yeah. And that's yeah. that's again, going back to reporting more details of this story. I don't think nearly enough of this story is out. So it's really hard to form judgments at this
0: point. I think the important thing from my perspective, reading it and knowing that you you know were kind of wrestling with writing it, I didn't, I never once read the story and was like, Oh, okay. And Craig's kind of like, let's put a bow on this and now move forward. And Oh, I feel like there was never any sort of tone of like, and now, you know, now it's time to, move. there was none of that. I feel like that was just a very factual based story, not really any emotion injected into it by the
1: writer, which in this case was you, but it's an emotional story to read. You know what I mean? Yeah. I hope so. Because that was my attempt at least to be neutral. And that's why I enlisted some people that I really respect to help me with the, uh, with the writing of this and the editing of this story. Um, There are going to be people like, like you said, there are going to be people out there who say, Oh, you you just gave him a a platform for his redemption story. Okay. Some people are going to react that way, but that was not my intent. And in my own heart, I don't think that's what I did.
0: Yeah. All right. Let's, uh, let's get to actual hockey and we'll start. Let's start with Montreal firing their coach and Mm -hmm. assistant coach, which, you know, we've we've talked on this podcast on a, a few times th- throughout the offseason. And then since the season has begun, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I was not nearly as high on Montreal. I don't think you were as a lot of people were. I mean, I saw them being picked to win that division before the season. And so, you know, over the last couple of weeks, the flip side to that is when, when we get listener questions are like, which team has surprised you or which team were you the most wrong on? The only team I feel like I was wrong on this year is Montreal is better than I thought they would be. What, they were 9-5-4, 9-4-5 four, four when they fired Claude Julien. So if yeah. you're better than I think you are, and then you fire your coach, I really don't know what they're doing. I will, do they think they're going to like challenge for the Stanley Cup this year? They were the 24th team in the playoffs last year, and they only beat Pittsburgh because Pittsburgh melts down in the
1: playoffs now. I think they have unrealistic expectations of who they are. And, and when you look at all the moves that ownership made or approved – to make in the off season. Yeah. I I think they expected more because they made so many moves, but when you analyze the roster, I don't know, man, I'm seeing the same thing you're seeing right now. They're in fourth place in that division. That still to me is a generous place for them. Um, I don't think they're the fourth best team in that division, even with all the moves they made in the off season. So I don't know, this, this felt like, uh, yeah, it it felt unfair. I I feel
0: like if, I mean, we knew stuff like this was going to happen. We knew teams sure. that division is, is loaded with teams who either the team and or their media and or their fan base all overvalue what they, what they have on their roster or, you know what I mean? Like, like Vancouver, we talk about a ton as being like, they think they're a cup contender. They're only ahead of Ottawa in that division Montreal, it seems to think they're a cup contender. And I think they're overachieving where they are right now, or, you know, I can come around enough to look and say the additions of guys like Tyler Toffoli were big, maybe fourth place in that division is where they should be, but I'm not firing my coach. If he's, if he's a few games above 500, he was four games above 500. and They had only played 18 games in a, in a division where, I don't know. It, I, I'm starting to like that division more and more just because they are all so insane about their teams.
1: And it all gets ramped up that much more when they're playing other Canadian teams. Yeah. And I wonder if that plays into it too, right? You're in an all Canadian division. So there's some serious bragging rights there, right? If, yeah. If they slip out of the playoffs, it, it, it's not a good look, even if you're, you know, if, if you're being realistic, you look at Montreal and say, yeah, at best they're a, they're a bubble playoff team, but there's some, there are some factors here creating unrealistic expectations for the Canadians.
0: I thought it was interesting. I want to make sure. I think it was Jeff Merrick and Justin Bourne I heard talking about this. And they said one factor to consider is maybe not just because it's all Canadian teams, but also maybe Montreal looks around and says this may be our best chance to make the playoffs for a while because in theory you're going back in a division with Tampa and Boston and Florida on the rise and still Toronto next year, whereas maybe they look around and say – other than Toronto, who looks consistent in this division? So maybe they're just like, we got to push all our chips in, go for it now. On top of that, how much more Carry Price do you have, Shea Weber? Carry Price hasn't even been that great this year. But there's maybe some logic to that. I'm just not I mean, sure I'm
1: making that move. What do, you, what do you make of Edmonton, then? I mean, they have the, two of the five best players in the world right now, and they're both playing like it. And Edmonton is surging right now. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, look, I mean, I, I think Toronto and Edmonton are the clear class of that division. But at the same time, Connor McDavid's only been to the playoffs once. So until I see them actually get in the playoffs and do something, I'm I'm not going to put a lot of stock in the Oilers. But um, yeah, I mean, Montreal being ahead of Calgary and Vancouver, it wouldn't have shocked me at the start of the season if they finished sixth. In in fact, I think when we picked our order
1: for this division, I think I had Montreal sixth based on what they've done. I know that I had them out of the playoffs. I had obviously Ottawa out of the playoffs. I'm trying to figure out. I'm trying to remember the third team that I picked to miss the playoffs. It may have been Winnipeg, but. Well, yeah, because it
0: is sort of a toss up. I mean, if you're just going by talent, it's Toronto and Edmonton. And then there is kind of just a, you
1: know, Vancouver, Winnipeg, Calgary,
0: and now Montreal. It was
1: Vancouver, actually. It It was Vancouver. I was with Jamie on nonlinear progression. And thus far, it's proven true they have
0: been the definition
1: of non-linear progression. Quinn Hughes this will lead the lead the league in points by a defenseman and also lead the league in points allowed by a defenseman. And <laughs> yeah, nobody ever looks at that second stat, do they? How they're uh, looking at it this year. <laughs> yeah. I bet. <laughs> well, finally, I finally noticing that Quinn Hughes cannot defend.
0: Yeah. It's uh in in that market if you're not winning all of a sudden the scrutiny is there if you're winning they they overlook a lot which you know is it's it's what it's all about if you're a fan but if you are media or if you're running the team especially and you have to make tough decisions you got to be honest uh, about yourself with what you have yeah. that is a fun division though anything else around the league before we get into the coyotes you wanted to touch on
1: no that was the one thing actually i just wanted to touch on the the north division because it has been so much fun there's been there's so much offense there's so many talented offensive players in that division that they're exciting games.
0: Uh, one last thing, actually, from that that group. Austin Matthews, 18 goals in 21 yeah. games.
1: Are you following Myrtle's, like, nightly tweets? Like, yeah. Austin Mat- Matthews is now on, on pace for this many goals in this many games. I say he does it. He keeps yeah. saying it's hilarious <laughs> <He> to watch. <laughs> he
0: does. <laughs> um, it makes me wish this was an 82-game season just because I do wonder – you know, if he's scoring at this pace, he, he's not going to be able to keep it up over 82 games. But I mean, I could do the math quickly right now that would put him on pace for like a 70 goal season. <laughs> like that would be unreal. Um, I do wonder this, and I don't want to take away from it. And I'm actually just having this thought for the first time now. So I'm not saying that there is or or isn't the right answer to this. But do you think if they were playing, if this was a normal season and he was playing all 30 other teams, he would still
1: be scoring like this? probably not because there, you know, there's more travel involved to uh, farther locales. It, it, there'll probably be a little more fatigue. Um, but I don't know, actually, because you can make a flip side argument that these teams know what to do to defend Austin Matthews after watching him. So yeah. they should have a better chance of stopping him. So I, I don't know. He, maybe he's just this ridiculously good i i, I kind of think the latter actually i think
0: he's this good i think he is too because like my, my you know my thought is okay but if he had to play vegas a couple times maybe he's not scoring in those games but yeah. then that's that's also he's yeah, playing Detroit a, a couple times division, right yeah but that release is just so it's not just it's not just a great release on his shot it's a very deceptive release on his shot i as a goalie i mean he's got to be the guy as a defender, you look and you're like, I don't want to see Connor McDavid coming up the ice. You don't even have time to think that because he's already passed you. But as a goalie, I have to think that Austin Matthews is at the top of the list of guys you don't want to face just because he makes them look so foolish so often. And these are the best goalies in the world. Uh, all right, so I mentioned the Coyotes are a third of the way through the season now at 9, 7, and 3 on the year. Currently, I guess, technically tied in points with L.A. for third in the division. LA who by the way seems to be getting it together about a, two years ahead of when I thought they would. Well, speaking of nonlinear progression,
1: but go ahead. Yeah, that's true.
0: It, they are a weird one too. We saw them a couple times last week since our our last podcast. It's not it's not like all their young players that everybody's excited about are doing anything other than like Gabriel velarde has been decent.
1: Um I mean, no, it's just can, that Justin Brown is gonna win the Rocket Richard trophy this year. It's just yeah. so not <laughs>
0: We watched them. We watched them play the Coyotes, and it was Dustin Brown, Drew Dowdy, Anze Kopitar, and Jonathan Quick that beat them one night. And then it was it was those like three guys. Back in 2012. <laughs> oh, that second game too, where they were just beating up on Connor Garland, and yeah, it's probably a good thing there weren't a, a, a full house of fans for that second one because uh, Dustin Brown definitely took some liberties there that, that seemed familiar. But it is crazy. You're right; he's scoring, and it's it's the same guys that led the Kings to success like eight years ago that are doing it right now. So in that in that respect.
1: I don't think this guarantees they're going to be good next year or anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does, does this, further than that, does, does this concern you if you're the Kings? Cause you're okay, great. Your, veterans are leading the way and you want them to, you know, shepherd the young guys to NHL adulthood, but Kopitar, Brown, Dowdy, Carter, those are four of your top five scorers right now. Kopitar has 21 points in 18 games. Dustin Brown has 11 goals. These are not young guys. Dustin Brown is 36. Kopitar is 33. Dowdy is 31 with a lot of mileage on his body. These guys aren't yeah. going to be around in a couple of years. So are your young guys actually stepping up or is this, I don't know, is this a mirage?
0: And the goaltending, I mean, Calvin Peterson has been better than Quick just in terms of goals against average, save percentage, all that stuff. And there's a ton of different ways and probably better ways, honestly, to measure a goalie. But even the eye test, he has been better overall this season. But we saw it firsthand when Quick is on, Quick is still probably the better goalie.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Peterson's num- even the uh, underlying numbers are better. And, and maybe that's hope for the future as well, but, but that's one guy. And, and honestly, it, like you talk about the scores, I mentioned
0: Gabriel Velarde, who's, who's been fine. I mean, he's very, very new to this league and and he's, you can tell he's going to
1: be good. Yeah. Alex, I is the only other one. He's 27. You know, it's not like he's a rookie that's, that's on no. the way up. No, no, he's, he's in his prime right now, approaching the end of his prime. If you look at the, the analytics on age production now. Um Yeah. So again, I don't know if I'd be concerned if I were the Kings and can these veterans keep up this pace in this crazy condensed schedule or is that schedule going to get to them? Is LA going to fall off? I don't know, but they are definitely the surprise of the division.
0: Yeah. I still think this division though, and I I doubt anybody's really going to disagree with this is still Vegas, St. Louis and Colorado and Vegas and St. Louis are up there. Colorado just hasn't played I mean, they've played as many
1: games as Vegas, but they've had but sort of a disjointed percentage right now is not good. But no. they, they've, they've, they've been known to have slow starts.
0: Um, that's true. <laughs> <to come>. <laughs> <laughs> Although this is later in the calendar year when they were struggling. Uh, I guess they're not really struggling right now. Do you think there's anything – we were talking about this the other day in the in the press box. Do you think there's any anything to the notion – we saw the Coyotes come out and not look good against the Kings two games. St. Louis has stumbled out since then. And, and, you know, they both played the Kings. Maybe the Kings are just on a roll. Or yeah. do you think there's anything to the notion that playing the same team seven times in the middle of the season
1: took a little bit out of these, these clubs, even if it was just for a week? I'm sure it was a combination of a bunch of things, but I do think, listen, first of all, Rick Tocket didn't mind the, the uh, Coyotes games against the Kings. He thought they played pretty well. They just didn't finish. Um, but yeah, I think LA is playing very well right now that that's part of it. And yeah, the, the Coyotes and the blues probably beat up on each other a little bit and they sort of got accustomed to playing that style of hockey against each other. It's like coming out of a playoff series, right? Yeah. And then suddenly yeah. you're in a new team. So yeah, I, I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll see. These things tend to balance out. You know, you, sometimes you, 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 they call these schedule game, the, the schedule games when, when you hit a team that has played a bunch of games, uh, uh, in, a, in a few very few nights it can be an advantage for you but I also think there are scheduled games where you just happen to hit a team where they're when they're hot or when they're cold and that's that's what's going on with LA right now it's like the team that nobody wants to play right now until they cool off again
0: well the Coyotes have been a very entertaining team this season and I, and I know you and I talked about this uh, before the season how it was kind of it was interesting how people looked, and I don't know if it was a combination of okay, you lost Taylor Hall, which I understand that, or you know the well the It really where it drove me crazy is it felt like it was a lot of people saying, well, they lost these draft picks the next two years. How can they be good this year? These draft picks aren't playing this year. They wouldn't have been playing anyway unless you got the first pick or you took uh, like Tim Stutzel or something. So that doesn't impact this year's team. This year's team is just the same team that made the playoffs last year. Minus Taylor Hall, but with a healthy Darcy Kemper. And as it turns out, Dvorak and Chikrin and mm. Garland taking more steps, you know? So yeah. it's, to me, it's not a shock there in a playoff spot. I am a little surprised, though, that they can just fall behind 3 nothing in the third period of a game and rattle off four goals and win.
1: Yeah, that's not something we've seen from the Coyotes in the past. And it, it's a good thing to have. They have actually allowed the first goal in. 12 of their 19 games this year, actually come back to win five of those and lose two more in OT. I wrote a piece just looking at the first third of the season today that just appeared a little while ago on my site. But yeah, that's I still think that even though they came back from back-to-back three-goal deficits against Anaheim, which, by the way, is a very bad team, you, you can't keep doing that. That's, that's not a recipe for success. I think that should be obvious to just about anybody. They have to have better starts. I don't know what the secret is there. We see teams struggle with this. The coach always gets blamed. Sometimes it is the coach's fault, but there are a lot of factors that go into it. They just have to figure that out. But looking at the season to date, you know, the first third of the season, some of the things I'm curious what you think. But some of the things that jump out at me, uh, I'll start with this. You mentioned that group of fourth and fifth year players. Um, That was the group that Bill Armstrong identified at the start of the season that would sort of set the ceiling for what this club could do this year. So far, most of those guys have contributed. Nick Schmaltz, Christian Dvorak, um, and and Clayton Keller. Clayton Keller probably less so. I would say I put those three guys in an elite group: Christian Dvorak, Nick Schmaltz, and Jacob Chikrin. They've all had very good seasons so far. Clayton Keller is coming over his last nine games. I think he has nine points. Definitely benefiting from playing on the line he's playing on. And then you've got two guys in Lawson Kraus and Christian Fisher who can't find the back of the net. But Overall, this group right now, they've really helped this team take a step. They've really performed as they wanted them to perform.
0: Yeah, and I just want to be clear for people, you're purposely not including Garland in this group because of when he came into the league. Yes. Because people yeah, are screaming at their podcast. Oh, yeah.
1: He deserves yeah. his own top, uh, separate topic anyway. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I, I completely
0: agree with you. And and Chikrin to me is the most, um, I don't want to say he's the most interesting, but you know, he's the only one in, out of that group that's a defenseman. We saw him take steps last year, especially offensively. He had 12 goals, which was 11th among NHL defensemen last season. Still very young. I mean, you got to remember, defensemen don't break into the league their draft year. He's one of like the few I can remember other than like Aaron Ekblad over the last six, seven, eight years. Uh, There might be one or two other ones. But usually draft year, that's not a year that most guys break into their league, into the NHL, especially a defenseman. But then we saw him take a step back in the bubble. Chikoran was not good in the bubble last year, I didn't think. I mean, he, he kind of tried to get it together. I, I know he was trying. He kind of got it together a little bit at times, but he was very inconsistent. And then by the last two games against Colorado, nobody could do anything. Um, so him taking this step this year is very encouraging because it's not just that he's providing offense. He is a good defensive player, too. He's still got, you know, he's still got room to improve. But him and Dvorak in particular out of that group Mm-hmm. The most important to me because of the positions they play and how pretty consistent, relatively, they have been this season. You've, I know I didn't score there for a little bit, but he was, he was at least doing other stuff. He was playing he, too many
1: minutes, too. Yeah. And we can talk about that issue later. But, yeah, but I think he's been the most consistent of those forwards. Too, too many minutes against Ryan O'Reilly, too, a lot of those minutes. Um, minutes.
0: I guess if you had to rank them in importance, you'd have to put Keller up there, too, just because of how much money you're paying him. Yes. And he, he's, he's been inconsistent, but not as inconsistent as in years past. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I really think it would help. He should, he should just push for playing St. Louis 82 times a year because it, it he finds his game against them. Uh, but there are elements to his game that are – are apparent this year that weren't there in years past. Like, he will get back and back check and try and make a play defensively. He's never going to be a great defensive forward, but he's been
1: better at least. But you can be good in structure, right? And, and look, I, I like the fact that Rick Tockett laid that out when he put these three guys together, Garland, Schmaltz, and Keller on a line. He said if they don't defend, they're not going to stay together. And for a good stretch, we saw them practicing really good habits away from the puck. They got away from it for a couple games there. You even saw him break them up. Uh, in the late in that Anaheim game, the first game, but they're back together. He's going to allow them to grow a little bit. For the most part, they understand that that's the challenge. You guys want to stay together, play on this exciting line and and get to play offense a lot. Well, you got to do these things away from the puck. And for the most part, I would say they've risen to the challenge. Yeah, I would agree. Um, In
0: terms of other forwards that have been a big part of this, We'll get to Garland in a second. What about Phil Kessel? Who I, I, I think he's been, he's been on a roll lately. There was a stretch there where he
1: wasn't really producing. He seems more active away from the puck this season. Completely agree. Completely agree. There's a jump in him over these last few games that I, we weren't seeing for that 11-game stretch. Of course, I write a story on him in his offseason regimen because he got off to the hot start with four goals in his first four games, and then he went to a major slump. Yeah. So I apologize <laughs> to everyone. I think he had three assists during those 11 games and no goals. Rick Tockett sat down with him. He told me he watched video. Tockett comes out – or Kessel comes out the next game. And he just had a different jump in his step and a pop in that shot too. And now he's got six points in his last four games. I mean, this is what they have to have from Phil Kessel. They they, got to have – he's got to be at least responsible away from the puck too. And that's a lot of what Tockett talked to him about. But even if you watch his defensive habits over these last few games, he is staying more within their structure. He's staying above his man. He's doing the things that you need to do to be at least competent defensively, which is probably all you can expect from Phil Kessel on that side of the puck. But more importantly, or just as importantly, he's contributing, and they really need him to simply score goals. They have to have goals from someone other than that top line. They have to have goals from Phil Kessel because of what he's getting paid and his role on the team.
0: Yeah, and you know, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that, you know,
1: you're not watching hockey as your job, you just
0: want to watch it casually. You can tell you could kind of tell this was coming from Kessel because as you're saying, Craig, he's he's more structurally sound within the team structure this year. And that's just apparent you don't have to sit there and, and break down plays. You can just are you noticing number eighty one on the ice this season? Because in it last year, you really didn't. Last year it was like, Oh yeah, Kessel's on the team. And this yeah. year it's like, even if he's not scoring, you're like, Oh, wait a minute, there he is though. There he's breaking up that pass or he he's you know, he's leading the, the the breakout down the ice, or whatever, or he's he's open for a like. It's just number eighty one is a lot more apparent on the ice, and I would dangerous. have said that as they say, yeah. he's dangerous on the ice, yeah. exactly. And I would have said that a week ago, but now he scored a ton too, so that you know that sort of emphasizes the point. Um, the goal the other night to to ultimately tie that game. I mean, you were there. the The feed from Connor Garland was like oh. shot out of the corner, and <laughs> Kessel was just like, "Oh yeah, I'll just put this right in." That was that, a
1: pass, wasn't it? As yeah. soon as the puck came to ke- uh, Keller, and, and clearly, you, when, when you're on the ice, when, you, when you're one of those guys that has great vision, you have a sense of where players are on the ice. And so, uh, Garland knew that Kessel was going to the net, but yeah. He didn't look once he got that puck. He just no. whipped it in front of the net. And that was, oh, it was a, it was a terrific pass. Garland is playing on instinct this year, which is great. That's, that's how you have to play. You have
0: to get to the point where your instincts are correct and then trust your instincts. And that plays is, is that if you're a coach trying to teach your kid how to play on instinct, Show him that Garland pass because you're right. He knew Kessel was going there. There was not a like, oh, let me see if I can get this around this defender. There was that confidence of, I'm going to throw this laser. It's going to get around the defender. And it's on Kessel to get a stick on the ice, which he did. And if he had hesitated for that second to analyze the situation, the play would have been gone. Yep. Yep. 100%. Um, the ability of this team to come back very late in games. It's, you know, I know this is, it's in everybody's mind right now because they've come back from down 3 nothing twice this week. But we have seen a couple times this season where they score in the final five seconds. They don't really – A, they haven't been out of very many games, maybe like two this season. Really, yeah, maybe just that Vegas game, that second Vegas yeah. game. That's the one that's the mind for me. Because even a lot of the multi-goal losses, they gave up an empty net goal later. There was one of them they gave up two. So, yeah, it really has only been one. But you can tell they, there were games they should have been out of. You're down 3 nothing in the third period. You shouldn't be in that game. They 100% believe they're going to come back and win these games right now.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's fun the ways that, that it's happened to I mean, if you're going to script a way to come back from a 3 0 deficit for the second straight night, how about a shorthanded penalty shot? Or, wait, wait, was that the first game? Am I forgetting this now? That was the first one. That was the first one. Okay. Yeah. So let's talk about that, first of all, as a, an ability to come back. You, you get that chance, and, and Christian Dvorak goes in and scores, you know, a shorthanded penalty shot goal, and suddenly there's a spark. It's just crazy the way things are happening right now, the way they're getting back in games. That
0: shootout move that he essentially used on the penalty shot, too. I know people are like, okay, well, at some point, the other team's going to know that's coming. Right. A a little. But I would say with with back to back games against Anaheim, they knew it was coming because they saw it on the penalty shot in the first game. It's not it's not the sort of move where if you know it's coming, you just automatically stop it. That's a difficult move to pull off the backhand shelf breakaway goal.
1: I'm going to give people a little tease. I'm going to be doing something on Christian Dvorak next week. Um, I'm not going it, to, it's part of a bigger feature, but I've already talked to Redeem Verbata about that because it's nice. essentially, I called it the reverse Redeem the, the, the day after he did it. <laughs> and I've, I've talked to Verbata about that move. See, he provided some insights. He's always great. Uh, so look for that coming next week. Uh, I, I will look forward to that because it's. I think
0: every Coyote fan as you're watching, you're like, wait a minute, I've seen this before, and it was just as effective when Verbata did it. It's not like he's going down there breaking out the Adrian Coin slap shot from 15 feet away. <laughs> the closer, uh, yeah, <laughs> the closer. I wanted to get your thoughts on this too, Craig. the The game, the second game against Anaheim, where they came back from down three nothing in the third, the, the Kessel goal we're talking about, Dvorak winning it in the shootout, although Aiden Hill actually had to make one last stop. Aiden Hill, we got to mention, I mean, coming in, making 14 saves, the save on Lundestrom in overtime was ridiculous. And Hill keeps downplaying it, saying that, that Lundestrom fanned on it. Maybe he did. It was well, still a ridiculous save. a little save. behind him, but he still got enough on it to
1: put it in the net. It was, yeah. it was a really cool-looking save. And, and my God, 14 saves in a relief effort, your first action in, or at least in the NHL, in basically a year. That, yeah, was, that was a hell of an effort. And look, we knew the Coyotes were three deep at goaltending. Uh, they they haven't shown it this year because Auntie Ronta hasn't played <laughs> nearly enough. But it was nice to see Aiden Hill come in. It's funny. Bill, Bill Armstrong had a funny quote on that because he, he said, you know, we've been telling these guys, you, you might play because of COVID. You know, you got to be ready. And, and he's like, all the guys are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like never <laughs> expecting it to happen in the Then Aiden Hill gets thrust into that situation. And and Bill says, you stay at the barbershop long enough, you're going to get your hair cut.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I feel like we have seen Aiden Hill in the past thrown into situations where you're like, man, that's, that's gotta be tough. And he has thrived. I'm not going to sit here and say like, he's going to be a clear cut dominant number one goalie in this league for years and years, but he has the, the upside to be that guy still in my mind where, you know, however the coyotes want to proceed with this going forward if they move on from Ranta and they go with Kemper and Hill as the backup next year or whatever, I think that that's at least in play. I don't know if he's totally ready for that. It depends where you think you are as a team, but I, I, I do like what I've seen from him, not just 14 saves, but I mean, now this is over the course of like a few years
1: you know, you you obviously worry will he be claimed in the expansion draft too? will he be one of the goalies taken that's yeah. that's something that they have to worry about i don't i don't know what it's going to look like what that market's going to look like so it's premature to say that he would be the guy but he'd certainly be on a list of of guys to consider if if Seattle's looking for a goalie the end of that game felt like and you know obviously
0: the crowds are small because you can only have 25% max um, the end of that game was the first time in a calendar year where I've been at a sporting event and felt the crowd when they won that game. Like there was a legitimate cheer where it was like, they just came back from down three, nothing and won in the shootout. It was honestly, it was the first time. Yeah. It was the first time since February of 2020. that I've, I, and I'm not even sure I felt it at, at a game then, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's cause I've been to a decent amount of sporting events in this last year, whether it's been diamondbacks or even an ASU football game covering these and there's no crowds at those. And there's not much of a crowd, even at the Coyotes
1: games, but they were, they were into it by the end of that one. Yeah. Yeah. it's it. Yeah. And it's, it, they talked about that at the start of the year, they wondered how much even a small crowd would help the Coyotes. Um, they've been boisterous. I'll say that about them. I've definitely noticed the crowds in the arena, even though we're talking between two and 3000 fans, it's not a lot, but I've noticed them. Hey, what have you made of OEL's play since his comeback?
0: I think it's, I mean, I, it's always – he's such a lightning rod now for criticism for whatever reason. I still think he can be better. There was one game in there, and we talked about this off the air. There was, was the second game back, and it was the second half of a back-to-back. His first two games were back-to-back against St. Louis. After where, a you know,
1: break for an injury, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, which, as you pointed out, was his longest uh, absence in his career to miss – his NHL career to miss that many games in a row. But I think he's been good. I mean, he's – he's at eight points now in nine games, so he is contributing yep. offense. Rick Tockett has made it abundantly clear – he wants offense from his defense, whether that means guys activating up the middle of the ice, even, or getting the puck in from the point. Oel's very good at getting the puck in from the point. I know he doesn't, it's not a slap shot, like talk it likes. like sometimes it's more of just throw it in there and, and let it bounce around like a pinball, uh, but he's producing offense. And the thing I'll say with OEL, he's always out there against the other team's top line. 95% of the time he's out there. His primary responsibility is defending the other team's top forwards.
1: Yeah, I and I do like I said. I, I, I yeah, that one game he really struggled when he was alongside Ilya Lebushkin. But I think his defensive game has sharpened of late. I still think it can his details can be better, his technique can be better. But you like the fact that he's producing offense. They need it desperately from the blue line. While he was out, it was Jacob Chikrin alone for a long stretch of that, and then Jordan Osterly popped up at the last minute. I still think they need more offense from their blue line. Those three guys are doing it. Those three guys account for more than 90% of the points from their blue line. Yeah. I, you know, Alex Golagowski is playing some brutal minutes right now, too. He's he, he's getting a lot of defensive zone starts. He's on, on the PK. So that's that's a factor. But he only has one assist. If you're looking for a fourth guy, you know, to get the your top four really contributing, they could really use a little more offense from Alex.
0: Yeah, because Nicholas Jalmerson's never really been an offensive contributor. And Jason Demers really hasn't been either. That's just not their game. Um, but it is interesting that, and maybe it's a good thing, I guess, in, in some ways, if you're looking and saying, well, who are the guys providing offense? It's Jacob Chickren who's going to be here beyond this year. It's Oliver Ekman-Larsen who's going to be here beyond this year. And it's Jordan Osterley who I would assume is going to be here beyond this year. You know, at least OEL and Chickren are signed beyond this year, and I would think they're going to keep Osterly around. So those are, those are guys that you want contributing offense. If it was just all coming from Damaris and Goligoski, you'd be like, we may have a problem here, big picture. Yep.
1: Yeah. yeah, no question. We're gonna
0: get. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, we're gonna get questions.
1: <laughs> we're, we're talking over <laughs> each other right now. You had mentioned the uh, the uh, performance of the PK too, and I think that probably warrants a mention because they lost so much from last year. The personnel: Brad Richardson, of course, was was signed out, signed elsewhere. They didn't re-sign in. Michael Grabner was bought out. Derek Stepan was traded, and then OEL was out of the lineup for ten games, and yet this this unit still ranked ninth in the NHL, which. Is really a testament to both, you know, the structure and the teaching that they've had, and then the personnel that have gone out there and filled in those roles. Yeah,
0: it, it's been remarkable to me what they had that stretch where they they killed off twenty four of their first twenty five road penalties, which which I mean that's ridiculous. Even if you've had the same group together for five years, um, but it has been remarkable to me that they were able to become a good penalty killing unit so quickly. Because, like you said, they they lost a bunch of pieces off the PK in the off season. And then they had injuries to guys this year, and not like guys have missed you know the whole season, but like you you were, didn't have Kraus for a while, you didn't have Jalmerson for a little bit in there, you know, even Christian Fisher. I know he's not contributing offensively, but he's part of the penalty kill. So to basically revamp your entire penalty kill and do it right away against Vegas and St. Louis, that's that's a pretty that's that's encouraging. Tyler Pitlick, I know he doesn't score a ton. I don't think they brought him in to score a ton. He's been solid.
1: Yes, he's been a good addition. There's he goes to the net. He got that deflection goal. He can carry the puck sometimes through the neutral zone, too. So I I think he's added quite a bit to this team, actually. What do you think about them
0: going to the net? I feel like it's it's pretty blatantly obvious that they're doing it a lot more this season.
1: Yeah. Did you see the Matty McConnell stat that I had in there? Matty McConnell's been charting the goals since the start of the season, where they're scored from. Yeah. It's a pretty telling number, actually, when, when you look at uh, where they're getting their goals. Uh, he has 72.82%. That's how precise Matt is. Wow. have been scored from his grade A range, which extends from the low hash marks to the end boards. So that's a lot of goals being scored right in that prime area. Uh, just over 20 more percent have been scored in the area from the low hash marks to the top of the circles. So you're basically getting nothing above the circles. You're getting everything down low. Yeah, that makes sense, uh, right? You're not going to beat an NHL goalie clean from the blue line. I'm sorry, no. and, and you know that whole idea about hammering slap shots from the blue line for deflection, sure, but sometimes a wrist shot's easier to deflect. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So just get it on net.
0: We we saw it, and we've seen it firsthand with this team over the last few years. They, especially on the power play, would pass it around the perimeter and wait for the perfect shot, and then the power play's over, and you're not scoring. And, and now they're they're doing something. It's it's so it's, it's such a, it's, it's a conflict basically, because you look at it and you say, okay, well, yeah, you're going to the front of the net. It makes it a lot easier to score goals. I was talking to Shane Doan about this last week and he's like, yeah, but it's not easy to go to the front of the net. And it's, it's not just, okay, if you go there, you're going to get cross-checked and thrown around. It's also sometimes you have other responsibilities before you can go to the front of the net. Like you may have a responsibility to go dig the puck out of the corner and get it to the point before you can even try to go through the just car wash of trying to get to the front of the net. The Coyotes are, it feels like like they are, they are on the air yet. (laughs) I have not actually. (laughs) Um, I like, but that that's what it's like. I mean, depending what team, some of these teams clearly don't have the defensive weapons and and it's a lot easier, but some of these teams you are just going to get thrown around if you try and get there. And the, one of the most, if not the most encouraging things for me with the Coyotes this year is they are doing it. Rick tockett has been saying it for years. They have said, yeah, we got to do this for years, but mm-hmm. they weren't able to do it. And it's not as simple as, okay, now we're trying. It's, you know, you possessing the puck more in the other team's zone. So you're able to set up, but that has been, those are goals that you can keep scoring if you can get set up like that. Yep. Yes, sir. You want to get are the you, questions? Yeah, Go ahead. I'll, I'll ask you one more. And I'm pretty sure this is in your story. How concerned are you about secondary scoring outside of the guys we mentioned that are
1: scoring very I mean they're still you know among the lowest teams in the league in goals per game uh, it's great that the short leash line is producing it's great that Kessel is producing and Christian Dvorak has risen but they're just not getting anything elsewhere in the lineup um, I mean they're like Jacob Chikrin of course on the back end but they're not getting enough goals from other guys and I'm you, look you're not asking for these guys to be 20 goal scorers maybe Lawson Kraus could have been in a in, in a full season if he had to hit so many posts, but you definitely need contr- contributions from Lawson Kraus. Um, when Pitlick's doing a little bit, you need more from Derek Broussard. I think you could use a little bit from Christian Fisher. Now, some of these guys have to just chip in with secondary scoring from time to time to boost you a little bit higher. Talk talked for so long about getting that like 0.3 more goals per game. It makes such a difference in this league. When you get that third goal, when you're averaging three goals a game, they got to find a way to get that. And, and, and I hate to, I hate to single him out because I think he's been playing really hard and doing a lot of good things, but yeah, they got to get more from Lawson cross. They got to get some goals. They expected him to be a goal scorer uh, of some note this year yet. You know, they thought he could be between on a pace for 15 and 20 goals in an 82 game season.
0: Yeah, it is a tough one. The post has not been his friend at all. Let's yeah. um... Let's get into some of the – he's at least a guy that can affect the the game in other ways, I, and he can play up and down the lineup, but you're right, they're, they're going to have to get some offense from him, which he still can provide. I mean, he's – he's. it's different when you are – when you're Phil Kessel and you get off to a slow start offensively, I think it plays in the back of your mind that, like, no matter what I do going forward, this is still going to be seen as a down year now. Whereas if you're Lawson in Krause, if he goes on a run here in the next two weeks where he has four goals or three goals, it's fine because he's doing other stuff. But he does need – they need some offense from him because – Garland and Dvorak and Chikrin in particular, I don't know that you can ask much more from, from them from what they're giving you right now.
1: No, and the Coyotes would be too easy to defend if you're just talking about two lines. I, I also think, I don't know if it's going to happen, I, I think this team could use a third-line center. I, they're getting killed on draws in some areas. and Look, they, they wanted Barrett Hayton to be that guy. Uh, it obviously didn't pan out. He's not ready yet, and that's okay, as we've talked about. He's down in the AHL now, but if they're going to make a move, I think they might look at adding another center to this roster.
0: Okay, let's get into some of these questions. There's a few that revolve around this guy. So if I don't read your question specifically, I'm sorry, but I'm going to just go with Los Coyote Steve, because it's the most straightforward. Have the Coyotes just about lost all patience with Ranta at this point?
1: There's a lot of other questions in here about his future. Yeah. I, I mean, let's be honest. How could you not at this point? He's played three games and he's had three injuries this year. Yeah every year he's been here he has been injured and i'm not look i'm not saying this is Auntie Ranta's fault he may simply have a body that's not equipped to handle this this sort of workload that just may be reality but yeah it's it's become apparent that they can't count on him being healthy and being able to play so you know i, I don't know even know if they're going to be able to trade Auntie Ranta at this point uh, at the deadline i don't i don't know what you could get for a guy who's just not in the lineup but in, in terms of his future, yeah, there's, there's no way Ronte Rontae's coming back next season. We've talked about this in the past with him specifically because he's played three
0: games a season, which means Kemper's had to start 16 of 19, which is too much. Um, yes. even, for, even for Kemper, who plays better the more he plays, there's a, there's a limit. And I think maybe we saw that the other night. The thing that is so vexing about Ronta is two of those three starts were pretty much great. Like when he, when he plays, he's very, it's so strange because it's like, okay, auntie Ronta starting tonight. Okay. I'm confident in what's going to happen in goal. Like he's very dependable when he's out there, but it's, it's between the actual games. Really? You can't as a number two goalie. And like you said, it's, it's not his fault, but as a number two goalie, the coach has got to be able to look and say, okay, we need to go to Ranta. we got to be able to go to our number two. They've got back-to-back games against Colorado starting tonight. Mm -hmm. You know, that's when you need to be able to say, okay, we'll go with Kemper one and we'll go with Ronta with the other and probably say, okay, we'd like to start Ronta in the first one to give Kemper a little bit of rest. They don't have that luxury, which is tough because they have a great goalie and and a very good goalie and an up and coming goalie. And yet they still only have two goalies. That's weird. Yeah. Yeah, that's a problem. Um, okay, let's go through some of these. Chris and Phoenix, 25th anniversary question. I always thought the Coyotes would have been better if they kept Solani rather than trading him to free up money needed to acquire Ronick. Solani was a better player at that point and going forward. Was it strictly a money thing? Was it a marketing personality thing?
1: It was both, actually. It, it was definitely a money thing, but they also wanted an, an American personality to market as they tried to build the franchise in this market. And, and let's be honest, JR was an unbelievable spokesperson for the team, um, public figure. He was amazing. He talked to everyone, had time for everyone, and it was genuine. He would engage people when he talked to them. So that, that, as much as the money thing, was a reason why they did it. If you're asking me if they would have been better with Solani, well, (laughs) JR Uh was still a really good player when he got here, but everybody knows he had that knee injury. When he was playing in Chicago, he was never the same player after that. Like JR was just electric before that knee injury, just electric when I watched him as a Blackhawk. He was still really good. Tim Solani was, he was just ridiculous when he went to the Ducks. Just
0: ridiculous. When you watched him as a Blackhawk in 92, did they win the cup that year? I don't remember. Hey, thanks for that. Okay. Thanks. Um, no, it's it's tough when you're comparing somebody to Tameus Solani. I mean, we're talking about one of the best players I've ever seen. So yeah, but uh, but Ronick, like you said, did a ton. Uh, Todd Walsh did a feature on him the other day on the on the pregame show, flashing back to the the game seven against uh, it was uh, game seven was against St. Louis, wasn't it? Yeah. But Darian Hatcher was the one who broke his jaw, and, he, and I just I remember even at the time I wasn't in Arizona yet, but I I remember at the time they like they basically told Ronick, okay, you cannot play. Or you can play tonight, but we're going to have to cut some teeth out <laughs> and then cut to opening face off. And he's out there.
1: Yeah. And his jaw wired shut, having to breathe through his nose. That's, and he described it graphically for me when I wrote that story a while back of the <laughs> things that he had to do to cope, including clear his nose. And then he made he literally made the sound of his breathing on the phone for me. It sounded oh. like a horse.
0: <laughs> uh, all right. <laughs> um, let's see. Non-linear donut ball delivery. I love this account. Uh, Brandon Tanev's new role with the Penguins doesn't seem to be working out. Mm, shocking! If you're Ron Hextall and, and looking at having to pay him through June 2025, how do you move him out? Yeah, you know that's a great question. And why the Penguins shouldn't have paid him what they
1: did in the first place? Hmm. Would they should you know hire. Answer. You know, is, is Rick Moran gming somewhere? <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah, to Rick Moran, <laughs> he will
0: trade He's for Brandon the brand Tanev. Drum. <laughs> <laughs> This is probably him. He's probably non-linear donut ball delivery. He's writing in just to troll me. Uh, Oh, this one's tough. Okay. Well, maybe it's not tough. Desert Doggies96 writes in, if today you could trade Dvorak, Chikrin, and Garland for Austin Matthews, would you do it?
1: Wow. That's – I mean, Dvorak would obviously have to be in that exchange because he's a center and he's a good one and you'd have to give quality, but wow. Ooh. Those are arguably, arguably uh, aside from goaltending, the three best
0: players on your team? Yes, the three best players on your team, um, and they're all
1: young enough where you assume they're still getting better. Yeah. Um, man, I'd, you probably I'd probably see. try and hang on to one of those guys. I'm not sure I'd go all three.
0: Somebody sent us the thing the other day. Did you see it? It was like Toronto, Toronto Media had caught on that Connor Garland was in the league, and they're like, oh, yeah, uh, he'll fit on Toronto. We'll give you our eighth defenseman.
1: I know, I saw, I saw a couple of articles on that and I just, you know, I didn't even bother addressing him. Like, really? <laughs> really? This is just absurd. I, I know. You know it all started because Elliot Friedman said they were going to target a top six forward. So yeah. some people connected the dots. Oh, they'll just go get Connor Garland because, you yeah. know, he's, he's going to want to get paid in Arizona. They're not going to pay him. And yeah, the Coyotes will absolutely give up their best forward right now for, you know, not much. Yeah, well, because it'll help first Toronto. round pick. Let Toronto's first round pick, which will be... Like twenty eighth, yeah, at best, right? Right? So you don't even know
0: if that guy's gonna pan out. Yeah, we'll give up Connor Garland for him. Sure, yeah, why not? Um, the the only thing when you trade, if you're trading your three best players, it'd be really hard to pass on Austin Matthews. And Toronto wouldn't do this trade anyway. Yeah. Um, the only fear there is if you're trading your three best guys, even though Matthews is the best player in that deal, obviously because he might be the best player in the NHL this year. If if you make that trade and Matthews gets hurt, you're just done because you've traded away the top half of your team for Austin Matthews, and then if well, he doesn't play.
1: Then you get into the lottery and get to a high pick. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's how it works, right? <laughs> oh yeah, that, actually, that doesn't happen for
0: the Coyotes. No. Um, yeah, Ozzy has another question about Ranta. So, at what point do we start looking for whoever is holding the Ranta Voodoo doll? <laughs> um, here's one from Murdoch: Keep one, trade one, cut one. Temper Garland Chikrin. I saw that
1: one too. And I'm like, Oh my God. No, way. that is tough. Okay. If, if we're forced to do this, yeah. if we're forced to do this because of their ages and their positions, I'm keeping Chicken. I'm trading Garland because I think he can bring the most return and I'm Cutting Darcy Kemper, but that's not what I want to do. (laughs) This is where it is. It works to our benefit
0: to not be doing this show in a market like Toronto or Vancouver or Montreal, where if we said this, it would immediately pop up in blogs. Oh, Craig Morgan wants to trade or cut Darcy Kemper. They should cut
1: Darcy Kemper. Yes, yeah. (laughs)
0: Um, So yes, I probably would have to agree with you because you're thinking at that level of you would get more in a trade for Garland than you would for Kemper, just based Goals on the contract.
1: Position. Goalies just don't bring much in trades.
0: Yeah, and I don't think you could let Chikrin go because he's... Number one so, defenseman, and you search yeah. a light on for those. Um, oh, here's one from Michael. I know this is still up for debate, but where do you guys stand on the Schmaltz-Strom trade win? Also, is Craig excited to hear Stan Bowman claim this season as a success and that Chicago's rebuild is over? Uh, <laughs> See if I can make a bell
1: sound here. Oh, that's not bad. Nice. That's good. Thank you for that. I'm Um, here for you. The Schmaltz-Strom trade is one that I think has helped both teams. I think both teams would like more. But Nick Schmaltz is having a pretty good season. He's in a mini slump right now. This is the exact time Nick Schmaltz talked about this in the offseason where he needs to break these sorts of slumps before they string into lots of games. He needs to be more consistent. He needs to keep producing. I think it's – is it three games now without a point for him? He needs, to, yes. he needs to put these to a stop and find a way to contribute uh, to show that he can be more consistent. But he's been very good this year. Um, as far as Stan Bowman, yeah, I don't want to talk about that anymore. <laughs> but yeah, and, and you look at the Blackhawks now, you're like, oh my God, they're, yeah, they're really good. Look at, look at where they are in that awful division. Just an awful division. I told you Columbus was not going to be a good team this year. You I did. told you Columbus. There are some bad teams in that division. I'm pretty sure I told you
0: Nashville wasn't going to be a good team this year. And they are, they've are. they played three less games than Detroit, but they also just lost to Detroit. Yeah, Nashville's
1: only- Like Columbus, Nashville, and Detroit, I all had out of the playoffs. So it's just a matter of that next team. I don't know what's up with Dallas right now. We'll see what, what, what they're able to do as they get playing some more games and get a rhythm. But they, they don't look like themselves either right now. They don't, but Hudobin looks really good in net.
0: They just don't ever play. Like, Dallas, for a variety of reasons, has had just chunks of games. They've only played 15 as we're recording this. Um, Detroit's only one point behind Nashville. <laughs> that is insane. Uh, and also, you know, Craig, Chicago's only one point behind Tampa. So maybe.
1: Yeah, I mean, Dallas's winning percentage is not good, though. It's uh, a yeah. percentage. It's 533. The Blackhawks are at 619. They are fourth in that division. So I don't think that's going to last. I still think, you know, I don't know if Florida's going to keep up this pace, but they look like they're ready to make the playoffs. Tampa's obviously going to be in. I think Carolina's going to be there. So can the Blackhawks really edge out Dallas for that last playoff spot? In the end, I don't think it happens. But, hey, if it happens, okay. Then they get to play Tampa in the first round. <laughs> that's the spirit. That'll go
0: well. Um, let's see. What else do we have here? Uh, Coyote in Philly. Which fast food chain has the best spicy chicken?
1: Ooh. Spicy chicken?
0: Well, this is tough because Cane's doesn't have spicy chicken. So if you're looking for a distinctly, okay, spicy versus regular chicken, I think Cane's only has one chicken, right? Yeah. Have you had Popeye's spicy chicken sandwich? It's pretty good. Is it? That's- I haven't had Popeye's in a while, but Pope- there's just not a lot of Popeye's around here, but they're when,
1: last time I had Popeye's, it was very good. I didn't have the spicy though. So maybe I'll, I'll go with you on that. That's a pretty good sandwich. No, I mean, I don't know what qualifies as fast food, right? I mean, if we're, if, if we're down on that level, then, yeah, I'm going to throw Popeye's in that, that level. If, if we're rising above, I'm not sure it's fast food. But on that level, Popeye's is a really good spicy chicken sandwich.
0: Wendy's spicy chicken nuggets are very spicy. And I'm, I'm somebody who doesn't notice the spice very often. Like, it's got to be a pretty – they're spicy. They, they will catch you if you're not ready for them. Um, yeah. let's uh, Okay, let's try to – I thought we had another food. Oh, here's a good one. Elden writes in, Craig, what was your favorite part of being Turkish for a week? Did you try any
1: fun Turkish foods? No, I did not try any Turkish foods, but I did I was able to sell a lot of real estate, so that's good. good you know way. what what I love about our
0: listeners and your readers, and I'm, I know there's an overlap in the Venn diagram there. it was all sarcasm back to you. <laughs> like, you just got a bunch of responses in Turkish. Uh, Jamie when he, when he on our text thread made sure to, to take the time to text back to you in Turkish. I had looked up what the Natty Hattie was called in Turkish, but I couldn't pronounce it. So maybe next week. Yeah,
1: that was a that was a brutal week.
0: Yeah, that I can't even imagine. Uh, Dave Henning writes in. It's two variations of the same question for this season. Only which defenseman in the Honda West would you rather have than Chikrin? And then taking into account age and contract, which defenseman in the Honda West would you rather have for the long haul than Jacob Chikrin? First of all, Dave points for getting in the full sponsored Honda West division. I'm still struggling with that, but where are you going with that, Craig?
1: I'm, I'm not struggling with that at all. I, I don't want any part of calling those teams by their sponsor okay. names. <laughs> that's that's fair. There's uh, no struggle. Boy, uh, how about Cale McCart? Would he work?
0: Yeah. Kale McCarr would work in both instances. Yeah, that's fair. He's He's, spectacular. He's a beast. He is ridiculously Uh, good. I don't know that there's a ton of other ones though. um, If you're going, if you're going for one year, yes. I could find some other ones. If you're going big picture, Chikrin would be off the top of my head behind McCarr probably. It'd probably be McCarr and Chikrin.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, Drew Doughty's obviously having a a great season, but Chickren's right there with him in points. So yeah, I, he'd probably be my second choice.
0: I'm yeah, so, I mean,
1: because Kale McCarr is good. <laughs> yeah, he really is. He
0: really. And we're going to see Colorado. That's the Coyotes have seen everybody in the division now except Colorado and Minnesota because those games got postponed earlier. We're going to see Colorado starting tonight. You want to talk about a measuring stick for the Coyotes? This is the the one team over the last what two years that. There were a couple of games towards the end of that playoff series where we were like uh, <laughs> okay we belong on the ice with them right now those two 7-1 losses to close out that series or they both felt like 7-1 losses at least
1: yeah uh, this really is a test and it, here's the other thing Colorado hasn't been playing well they just did they lose their last game 6 to uh, 2 Yeah. before Minnesota finished its road trip so i'm guessing they're going to be ready to play tonight
0: yeah i mean if you're if you if you look at this big picture if you're the coyotes you kind of want Colorado beating all these other teams because you figure Colorado is a playoff team. So Colorado losing to Minnesota is not good. Now, obviously, you need to beat Colorado. You don't want them to get right against you. But you need these other teams. You need Colorado, St. Louis, and Vegas. They can just go on a tear. That's fine. Just if you're the Coyotes, you're trying to be the fourth team in. And that doesn't mean you can't finish third or even second in the division. But just be aware at the end of the day when there's four teams in, Colorado, St. Louis, and Vegas are going to be three of them in whatever order. Yeah um bobby big wheel we haven't heard from him in a while do you think the coyotes would trade for sam bennett he fits a need for power up the middle as a great playoff performer and can add to the coyotes newfound grit which is prov- uh, proving a successful strategy
1: uh, uh, Where do where you sit on sam bennett i feel like jamie should answer this question he has a lot of thoughts on sam bennett He does, but they're all over
0: the place. He was so angry when the Flames burned a year of his contract eligibility a few years ago. And then I believe last year he was like, that was a good move. (laughs) They should have burned too. Uh,
1: He hasn't been a terribly productive player, but uh, I mean, they they definitely need help at center. I I wonder if they'll look to address that at some point.
0: Yeah, if you're telling me Sam Bennett is available on cheap, I'd take a flyer on him, but... I'm not giving up the pieces that I think most teams are gonna ask for from the coyotes like the the maybe most encouraging thing about this coyotes group this year is that it's the core guys for the most part that are as you said earlier that are really the ones driving this. I mean that's why you you draft guys and then and resign them i mean i've I've said on the show I think they probably played paid Keller too much, but I've also said I understand the thinking behind it. you're trying to keep your core together if guys you drafted they have that. I wouldn't mess with the core unless. You know, unless I'm getting a really good return. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to find... Here's, go one, ahead, from... here's one. Go ahead. Go... No, go ahead and read yours because I'm looking for one specific
1: one. Dave Penning, if you had to nominate Coyotes for the All-Star game, who would be your top three and in, in what order? I mean, Conor Garland's at the top for me. Jacob Chikrin is on that list. Uh, number three guy? Mm, I don't know, actually. Um, I'm not sure I have a third guy that would be All-Star level. Maybe Christian Dvorak. Um, yeah, I'd
0: go Dvorak. Kemper's been really good. Um, he hasn't been great, though. No. Playing too his much. N- yeah, his numbers. I mean, there are some games where he has taken over, but they really, you know, actually, they haven't asked him to take over games as much this year, which is good. Um, yeah, I'd probably, well, Craig is gone. Craig has left. I would uh, I would probably go Garland, Chikrin, and Dvorak. I think that's fair. There's also a lot of times you get a, a goalie in just because of like the format of the game where they're like, Oh, we got to fit a goal. The coyotes haven't got to just have like a true all-star. I don't feel like in a few years they had yeah. Keller. Keller was an all-star in his worst year. Probably John Scott wasn't a coyote when he was an all-star. Like, <laughs> let's just get some actual coyotes in there as all-stars. Yeah. Garland and chicken are worthy this year. Yeah. I think Devorak probably is too. It's, it's tough at that position. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go along those same lines. This is the one I was looking for from Coach East Jack. How do you like Dvorak's chances of making the 2022 USA Olympic team or Keller or Schmaltz or Darcy Kemper in Canada?
1: Wow. I haven't given that thought or done enough analysis of the players uh, that might be in play to answer that one definitively. That's why <laughs> some of these questions, like, I could write a whole story on this. I would really have to do some reporting to really get a sense of this. But, yeah, I mean, if they keep progressing – they got to be in the mix, right?
0: The Coyotes should have some guys on Team USA. I think that that's maybe the best way to answer this question is, yeah, at the Olympics in 2022. Because what was the the lineup the other night? I was looking at this. I think eleven of their eighteen skaters in one of the games were American. Like the Coyotes are a very heavily American team. Yeah, and and those aren't like fringe guys. I mean, most of those eleven are in there every night. So yeah, whether it's Devorak or Keller or Smaltz, uh, Chickrin for sure. I would think. um, Kemper, it's obviously tougher to make the Canadian team. But if you look at all the best goalies in the NHL right now, a lot of them are Finnish or, you know, from other places in Europe. If you're looking at the best Canadian goalies, Kemper's probably
1: is one or two, isn't he? Uh, Well, I mean, let's see. That's no guarantee he would make it. Um, I'm trying to think of
0: the top goalies right now. I mean, like... Last year, Rask, but obviously he's Finnish. Um I, I, I'll just say this, Kemper would be in the mix for sure because he's, he's got to be on the very short list. Now, I don't... Hunter Halibuk's American, right? Michigan. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. I'd, I'd have to... Again, I'd have to do analysis. I don't want to answer. Just throw some stupid thing out there and then realize, yeah, that was wrong.
0: I'm going to throw some stupid thing out there and realize it was wrong. I think he would be on the very short list. Now, I do think it's tougher if... Um, like Kerry Price hasn't been that great this year. If Carey Price was playing like Carey Price, he's going to make it yeah. because he also plays for Montreal and he's got a history of being great. Kemper toils in a little bit of anonymity when you're talking about forming Team Canada because he plays not just in the U.S. but in Arizona. But he's been really good now for a few years. Um, here we can wrap up on – here's a couple more we can wrap up on. Rebecca, what are realistic expectations for this season? Every time I think, wow, this coyotes team is good, they lose a the game, and I they think I think they should win, and I'm depressed. It might be easier for my mental health to just lower my expectations. Go ahead. <laughs> I think I I mean my expectations for this team this season haven't changed. I think they should finish in that four or five range in this division. I think I honestly believe they're better than Minnesota. Maybe L.A. is better than Minnesota, and that's the team you're competing with. I think this Coyotes team should be a playoff team. I don't know that I see them winning an opening round series against Vegas or Colorado, if that's what it comes down to. I'd love to see Coyotes Blues again for seven games in the actual playoffs, and that's possible. But as I've said since the offseason, I think this should be a fringe playoff team.
1: Yeah, I agree with that completely. And it'll be really interesting if L.A. actually keeps this up and stays in the mix.
0: Yeah. Uh, here, we'll wrap up with Dangle, Snipe, Belly, since we we're we're pretty deep into this. Craig, do you get joy out of making people cry? (laughs) I don't know what that's about. Depends on the person. Okay, that's fair. Uh, Luke, have you discovered any new and awesome food spots through the pandemic? No, I haven't been going to food spots, which is like my favorite thing to do. Um, No, nothing new. Um, And what do you think are the main driving factors for Clayton Keller suddenly discovering relatively what defensive play is?
1: I think it's playing on that line and and Rick Tockett laying it out for him putting the, you know, laying down the law saying, you want to stay on this line? You're going to have to do those things in order to do it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's fair.
0: Um, yeah, I think we can. I mean, there's a lot of questions, Greg. We can keep going if you want. It's
1: up to you. I saw the one on which uh, current roadrunner is going to make the most impact from Desert Doggies 96. Uh, which current roadrunner will be the first to make an impact with the Coyotes? Hayton, Soderstrom, Yannick, Other. Whew. Good question. It is a good question. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. They're, they're such different players, obviously different positions, different styles of games. Hayton's a center. Yannick uh, has been playing some center down there, which is interesting to me. I haven't even asked about that yet, um, but I still see him as a power forward in this, in this league. And then Soderstrom, obviously they want him to be a, an offense driving defenseman, run the power play. So whew, hopefully they all have an impact.
0: Yeah. I, I think, I think it's very big for those three guys specifically. they, the Coyotes don't have the deepest prospect pool right now. And, and, you know, to be fair, a lot of that is because their prospects for a while are up here on this team now, but, um, they need to hit on all three of those guys. You know what yep. I mean? Cause they, because after that, I don't know that you're talking about major impact guys. You might still be talking about NHLers and, you know, certainly one or two more could emerge, but right now, those are the three guys. They all need to make an impact. I would say, I don't know what the timeline would be. They all need to make an impact within the next three seasons. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and
1: Hayton probably sooner than that, but but not necessarily. You would, yeah, you would hope sooner than than that with Barrett since he's already had some NHL experience. You would hope with Hayton that it's just about playing one season in the A and then he's ready. Yeah.
0: Um, is anyone? This is from Snarky Penguin forty oh, four. Okay, well, probably on the same side. Is anyone going to stand up and punish those who continue to take cheap shots at Garland? Starting with Getzlaff tomorrow. So this question from a few days
1: ago. Um, I mean, I think they are to an extent. You've seen them, you know. You've seen fights for whatever those prove in a game. You've, I think you've seen some guys standing up. I, I still think this team needs some more heft on, on the blue line. I know they were able to add it uh, on the front end. It was hard to do on the, the blue line because they had all these guys under contract and they couldn't move them. But they could use a little more thump back there. Let's put it that way. They they could use a guy in the system like Kevin Ball. Yeah, they could. Um, the, the series against
0: the Kings really, I think, drove that point home for people because the Kings very clearly came out and said this 83 guy, we're just going to beat him up basically. And it's tough to beat Garland up because even if you have hurt him, he doesn't show it. Like he just pops back up. But the Kings, especially in that second game, I think they crossed the line a few times, but that was clearly their plan. They were willing to take a two minute penalty. If it kept the coyotes best offensive weapon from doing what he can do. So we'll see. And i and I don't think really got to do that as much. But you do wonder if other teams are going to see the blueprint that the Kings put out there. And honestly, the Colorado put out there in the playoffs last year. Yeah. Uh, but the counter to that is, I do think the Coyotes with Bill Armstrong and Rick Tockett, you know, you have a guy like John Hayden, you already had Lawson Krause. You've got some guys now that very clearly know hey, if this guy gets knocked down, it's your job to go out there and make sure it doesn't keep happening. Yeah. Uh, that might be it. Yeah. There's a lot of people talking about napkin jummy. Um,
1: yeah. Okay.
0: Has uh, Rose, has Dvorak taken over using the patented Verback Hander? Nope, nope, <laughs> <That's> just... <laughs> got it. Coming next week, Rose. Um, You already wrote back the hot hands, but you can say it here too. Any chance the Coyotes kick the tires on a guy like Cody Eakin?
1: Mm, yeah, I'll stand by what I tweeted. His underlying numbers are terrible, and it's not just about the team he's playing on. Uh, Justin, here, we'll close. I promise we'll
0: actually close on this one. Do the Coyotes have a problem with playing down to their opponent's level?
1: Yes. I think everyone will say that around there. Tockett will say it. Armstrong will say it. Yeah. They, although, I mean, when you look at their performance against San Jose and Anaheim, y- yes, they fell behind. So that's – it's probably fair to say that. But at least they got three wins against Anaheim in four games, and they got three out of a fa- four possible points against San Jose. So they're, they're getting the job done in the end against those teams. Yeah. And Big Tortilla, I did say we were going to answer his question. Big Tortilla
0: back. But he is. He's back. The coyotes are, doing are big tortilla. We want to know off doing big
1: tortilla things. Probably in the tortilla. coyotes are any interest in Tanner Pearson from the coyotes. I've heard those whispers, but we'll see. I mean, there's so much is speculative at this point. Uh, again, I'll, I'll go back to the idea that if they're going to add something, I think they'll look to add a center, but we'll see how it all plays out. Do you remember that seventies line that the Kings had with
0: Carter and tafoli yeah. and Pearson? Would you have ever thought in 2021 the only guy still there would be Jeff Carter? No, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, you might want Tyler DeFoley, huh? Yeah, I'll take DeFoley over Pearson. I'll just go ahead and put that out there. But Pearson's interesting. He's not consistent, but he is he's a different dynamic. I mean, I would assume that's somebody you can get for cheap and we have seen him be good, very good in this league. All right, that's going to do it for us, Craig. Thanks uh thanks for doing this. Thanks to the listeners for writing in. Jamie, thanks for not being here. That's probably the person I should be thanking most. Um all right. For Craig Morgan, I'm Luke Lipinski. Thanks for listening to the Natural Hattrick Podcast.